Welcome to the Climate Conversation, the bi-weekly podcast of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. This is episode six. I'm Dan Brissett, the executive director of EESI, and I'd like to introduce my intrepid co-host, Sydney O'Shaughnessy. Hey, Dan. I am very excited. I know I say this every single week, but I'm very excited to talk about our latest briefing um, today. Well, Sydney, I assume that every week you are, in fact, more enthusiastic and eager to get started than you were the week before. So no, no questions there for me. Um, yeah, this is episode six. We are going to mix up our format a little bit and we are going to talk amongst ourselves, but really this podcast is all about highlighting the speakers of our first ever congressional climate camp, which was held on Friday, January 29th. Uh, and um, it, if you're interested in coming back and catching up, Everything, of course, is always archived and available for free at www.eesi.org. But that's what today is going to be all about. And the Congressional Climate Camp was really exciting because over 300 people came to it. And so we thought it would be a great um, addition to our podcast. So we're going to just recap it, go through the different sections that was a part of that climate camp, and hopefully inspire you to go watch it yourself. That's right. I'm pretty sure it was like 332 live streamers. Not that I pay any attention to these numbers, um, but that means there were over 300 million people in the United States not tuning in. So um, <laughs> most of you listening today uh, are, are potential new audience members for our archived webcast. So Dan, before we jump right in, I think you should definitely tell our audience what this Congressional Climate Camp is that we're talking about. Sure. So uh, Congressional Climate Camp is a four-part online briefing series that ESI is hosting for the first four months of 2021. Um, the one that we're talking about today was about budget appropriations and stimulus. There'll be three later installments, one at the end of February about the uh, emissions profiles of the top emitting sectors of the economy in the U.S. The third one will be in March, and that is going to be all about what we're calling climate policy near misses. So things that uh, almost happened in the past, policies that were almost enacted in the past. Um, and even if they weren't enacted, they were still really important and they represented sort of the best thinking at the time. And they're very important data points for people to have today. And then the fourth one in April will be all about what we call double whammy. So policies that we can enact now, in most cases or many cases with bipartisan support, that would provide mitigation as well as adaptation benefits. And the reason why we're doing these uh, is because we're at the start of the 117th Congress. We are also at the start of the Biden-Harris administration. And it's a really critical moment in time for climate action. Um, we have a lot of goals that we're setting for 2030, 2035, 2040, uh, in some cases earlier than that. That will, be here, that will be here before we know it. Uh, and so if we want to get serious about climate change, this is the time to start. The time to start was actually a long time ago, but um, this is all about educating staff people on Capitol Hill. It's all about educating people who work in the agencies. It's about sharing information with the public, with the media, with advocates, with stakeholders, people who work in academia, people who work in state government. Um, and it's about raising the basic level of awareness of some of these issues. And we chose to start with uh, budget appropriations and stimulus because chronologically, that's gonna be some of the first opportunities 
that come before Congress to take action. The, uh, uh, as you'll hear from our speakers when we get to the excerpts, um, this is an annual process and putting ourselves in the shoes of uh, congressional staff, it's gonna be one of the first things they have to deal with. And so that's why we chose to start there. And that's why we chose to kind of go through the sequence that we picked. So uh, now that we have that under our belts, we can take a look at what the uh, you know, top emitting sectors. And by that, I mean, uh, we're looking at, we're gonna be looking at generation. So where our electricity comes from, uh, we're gonna be looking at buildings, transportation, agriculture, and industry. Uh, we are uh, still working on sort of the, the details of the briefing, but that's what we're looking at. Um, and so, um, you know, as Congress continues its work in the 117th Congress, as the administration gets up and running, uh, we think it's going to be really helpful for, for policymakers and their staff um, to have that information um, early in the year, early in the session of Congress um, as, a, as a reference point. Now, we're talking about the briefing, the climate camp itself, um, but uh, there's actually a lot that went into it. The briefing was a big part of it, but we're also doing the podcast today. We'll be doing them in the future. We're also going to be posting the archived webcast, the presentation materials, written summaries. We're also going to be writing the uh, articles and fact sheets that people know and love from EESI so that over the next couple months, we are going to be all focused on congressional education to raise awareness among new staff, new members, new stakeholders, new agency officials, all about climate change topics with, as always, a special focus on solutions. And I know I did not know a lot about appropriations or budget or stimulus going into this, but I really loved learning about it through the lens of climate change. And I really think that even if you don't have much interest in those things, the presentations that, that of the first congressional climate change climate camp and the ones in the future are just so interesting. There's something there for everyone. And I think that we should just dive right in. We've been talking about it. So why not just let's give our audience what they're here for. Let's recap this briefing. Um, our very first speaker was Kari Clark. She is an energy policy analyst at the Congressional Research Service. And during her presentation, she discussed the appropriation cycle in depth the role of the Senate and the House committees in the appropriations process, and some challenges that FY 2021 will be facing. Dan, do you have anything to add before we cut to her snippet? Uh, not much. Um, you know, Congressional Research Service is, um, is, an, is a resource uh, available to staff people. Um, Kari is an expert in, uh, in her field. Uh, she's going to be talking about uh, the Energy and Water Appropriations Bill, which is one of 12. Um, we actually decided to uh, feature Kari and the Energy and Water Bill because it's one that actually tends to move through the process. It's, uh, as I like to joke, relatively less dysfunctional than some of the other appropriations bills. Um, and so for if you're trying to get an understanding of how it works, you should use something that works. Uh, and so that's why we chose to focus on that bill. And really, they're um, uh, Kari's an expert. She is uh, really interesting to listen to. Um, and I felt like we also had a great Q&A, which is not part of the snippet, um, but it was really interesting. Yeah, for sure. The snippet does not do her presentation justice, but you will hear her talk about in this podcast about the House and Senate committees and what they kind of do with the appropriation bills. So here she is. Now that you have an understanding of that process, I'm going to discuss the responsibilities of the appropriations committees. 
As I mentioned, the House and the Senate Committee on Appropriations have jurisdiction over the annual appropriations measures. Each committee is organized into 12 subcommittees, and the subcommittee that is responsible for appropriations for the Department of Energy is the Subcommittee for Energy and Water Development and related agencies. Um, each of these has, there are multiple agencies in, in these bills and they're spread um, throughout the 12 bills, but DOE is, is in the energy and water development related agencies. So that's the, the, the one that I'll focus on um, through the remaining part, remaining part of the presentation. But after the president submits the budget, the House and Senate Appropriations Subcommittees hold hearings on the segments of the bu budget under their justification. They'll focus on the details of the agency's justifications, which provide supporting materials for the budget submission. Agency officials primarily testify at these hearings. Uh, they can also be supplemented by meetings and communications between subcommittee staff and agency officials. Um, in addition, subcommittees can solicit requests from members of Congress for programmatic levels and language to be included in the appropriations bills or the committee reports. And that raises a point I just wanted explain there's appropriations bills and their committee report languages language that accompanies that and the appropriations bills provide budget authority for and direction to agencies additional guidance is usually contained within the appropriations committee report language and that guidance is usually more detailed so looking at eere eere receives an appropriation in the energy and water development related agencies bill and, and recommendations for funding for various programs within EERE are contained within the report language or explanatory statement. Now, that report language does not have the same effect as law, although agencies usually follow much of what is contained in the reports. So after conducting the hearings, um, the committees make their suballocations and the subcommittees begin to draft, mark up, and report the regular bills under their jurisdiction to the respective full committees. Both appropriations committees consider each subcommittee's recommendation separately. The committees may adopt amendments to a subcommittee's recommendation prior to reporting the bills and making them available for further consideration by their respective chambers. Well, like uh, Sid was saying at the beginning, um, that snippet is just um, one morsel of, um, of Kari's presentation and I hope everyone takes the time. Um, she also had slides which are available online as well. And they were good. They're really interesting and informative. She had some great budget charts and tables and all that. Our next speaker, so let's back up just one bit. Kari, uh, given uh, her expertise, did a wonderful job of laying out the process. She also highlighted some issues in the FY21 bills. Perfect way to start the conversation, setting a very strong foundation for everything that's about to come. And so, um, Kari, if you're listening, thank you so much again for a wonderful presentation. Now we move on to our second speaker. Franz Werfmans-Dobler is an expert uh, senior advisor with the Bipartisan Policy Center. He uh, is also a Capitol Hill veteran. He worked for three top appropriators uh, over his time on the Hill. And there really aren't that many people from a staff person's perspective who can talk about this stuff with more authority uh, than Franz. And so now what Franz's presentation is all about, what his segment is all about, is taking that sort of process-oriented presentation that Kari started with, putting on his staff-colored goggles and looking at it and helping people understand what they need to be aware of, what are some of the different dynamics, 
And again, when we get into the Q&A portion, which will not be part of the snippet, so everyone has to go back and listen to it, um, really interesting conversation with Franz um, about um, sort of how the process will play out from his perspective and given his expertise and experience how it's played out in the past. And honestly, how he described how the budget process in comparison to the appropriations process was super interesting. And it really made, you know, for people like me who have, who have never been experienced with, you know, how things work on the Hill, it really just showed very clearly how things work and why it's important. Franz wins best analogy of the day award for his take that each appropriations bill is like a sibling. Um, and, um, I don't know if that's in the snippet or not, but again, you've got to go back and listen to it. So without further ado, uh, here is Franz Werfmans-Dobler uh, with the Bipartisan Policy Center talking about appropriations and the budget from a staff person's perspective. Thanks a lot, Dan, and hello to everyone out there for uh, Climate Camp. This is a great opportunity to learn about the budget appropriations process. What I thought I'd do is provide a few introductory comments, and then I know that there are some questions out there, I thought we could uh, talk more about that and build on um, a great introductory presentation by Kari about the, the process. So just a couple of first thoughts. Um, one of the most important things that I think that uh, people want to know is that the Budget Committee, the Appropriations Committee, are both in the House and the Senate, are in parallel. That means that they essentially have the same jurisdiction. And one of the reasons that that's important to know and understand is that there are a number of authorizing committees that are in the House and the Senate, and they don't have exactly the same jurisdiction. And so what I mean by the House, that in terms of the House and Senate for authorizers, there's the Energy and Natural Resources Committee in the Senate, but some of that jurisdiction is in the House Resources Committee, some of that jurisdiction is in the House Energy and Commerce Committee. So a key part about making appropriations work is that the Budget Committee and the Appropriations Committee have parallel jurisdictions. So that is a, a key point. And just understanding also the calendar, this is an annual cycle, and uh, understand that there are certain things that happen at various stages. We'll get into a little bit more of the details um, as to why things may be delayed, but the knowing the calendar. Uh, part two here, and uh, Kari and Dan talked a little bit about the 12 appropriations subcommittees. But one of the ways I like to think about appropriations subcommittees, which is different also than the authorizing committees, is that they have a lot of power. Each subcommittee has a lot of power. They are essentially siblings of one another. There's 12 siblings. They get an allowance, they get assigned specific chores, and they have different personalities. Um, there's the big kid, which is the defense subcommittee. There's the really little kid, which is the ledge branch subcommittee. There's uh, kids that are a little bit more troublemakers and there's kids that are really good kids, but they, they all are important. They cover different jurisdictions, uh, but you should just know that that's kind of one of the ways that the appropriations process works. Um, for anyone who works as a professional in Washington, elsewhere or works on Capitol Hill, understanding the budget and appropriation process, in my opinion, is one of the most important skill sets you can have uh, in terms of being successful in advancing ideas and, and things you care about. Um, as mentioned by Kari and, and a bit of the discussion with Dan, there are key important things you need to know about. 
Some of that includes what is the 302A, the budget committee uh, allocation to appropriations, which is discretionary spending, the 302Bs, which are the division of among the 12 subcommittees. What are the jurisdictions of the subcommittees? What is mandatory spending versus discretionary spending? What are defense and non-defense levels? Um, and the way that I like to describe how authorizing versus works with appropriations is more of the checkbook idea. The authorizers create a program, they give guidance in terms of what that program should look like, and a checkbook is sent up, is set up. Um, there could be zero dollars in the checkbook, there could be some dollars in the checkbook, or could be all the funds that were desired in the checkbook. And then that's how the program is administered. So that's just one way to look at it. Other ideas have come up that are a little bit more complex, but it gets to the budget, out, budget authority and outlays, riders, chimps, rescissions, impoundments. These are other issues which are very much a part of the process. So just three thoughts to begin the discussion, but again, the, the budget and appropriations process is really important in terms of the important role of Congress and its engagement with the administration. Great. Um, so again, if you're interested in anything to do with appropriations or budget, you should definitely go back and watch the full briefing on our website at esi.org briefings. But now we're going to jump into our third and final speaker, um, who is Karen Wayland, who is the CEO at KW Energy Strategies. She broke down what stimulus was in terms of budget and appropriations. She was building on from the um, presentations from the previous two speakers. Um, in her presentation, she broke down what stimulus spending is, she outlined the difference between relief and stimulus, and detailed how stimulus can be used for economic growth. So obviously, you know, when you hear the word stimulus, it's going to mean economic growth, but she really broke that down and showed you how come, like, the bills are introduced in the way that they are and written the way that they are, so that it, in the future, will create economic growth. In her snippet, she's going to basically break down stimulus for you, for you. She's going to talk about the three key things of what makes stimulus stimulus. And I'm not going to say any much any more than that. And there you go. So stimulus funding for economic growth. If we're thinking about what a package might look like um, um, this year, there are three um, characteristics of stimulus funding that are different from regular appropriation. It has to be timely, targeted, and temporary. You'll hear those. That, that is a kind of a paper that came out in 2008 in the middle of the crash by Doug Elmendorf, who's the former CBO director and other uh, researchers are talking about this timely target and temporary. I think it's worth visiting that and making sure that we're focused on that for the next um, package. Targeted, meaning that higher spending should raise output in the short term. Um, and we need to focus on the sectors and employees that have been most vulnerable and affected by the downturn. And the benefit of, of, of um, well, that's the targeted. The timely is we can't delay enactment and we have to craft these tax cuts uh, for quick implementation using, and Franz mentioned this, using existing programs. And, and you're going to hear me come back to that again. In order for relief and rescue and stimulus to be timely, you've got to make sure that it's going flowing through existing programs so that the money can move quickly. So then the targeted, um, you know, making sure that we're, we're addressing those who've been uh, most affected and the sectors that have been most affected. And the benefit when you're targeting those sectors and, and people who are the most vulnerable is that they turn out to spend the money quickly. And that is another way that we can ensure quick economic growth is to make sure that the money doesn't sit in a savings account. 
And then temporary. Temporary is really critical. We don't want to create a situation where the bill that is um, a true stimulus bill ends up enacting permanent tax credits or permanent increases in appropriations. Um, we don't want to create long-term debt that will you know, end up burdening the future generations and also raise um, interest rates. There is a risk of inaction, which gets to the timely part, versus imperfect action, which gets to the targeted and temporary. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that, that kind of the risk of inaction versus imperfect action um, a little bit later with a very specific example from the Recovery Act. Yeah, Karen, what a wonderful presentation. Um, and again, um, sort of really interesting perspective. Um, and I'm really happy that Karen was our last speaker. She was really able to um, orient our audience, not just about the present tense or about the past tense, but about the future tense. Uh, and help people apply what they've just learned from Kari and from Franz and um, to sort of something that Congress will almost certainly be dealing with um, in the next couple months, uh, whether it's pandemic oriented, uh, which my guess is will be the near-term concern because it's everyone's near-term concern, uh, or something climate oriented, which sounds like it will come a little bit later in the year. Um, so when you take those three speakers, when you take their presentations, their perspectives, I think you actually get a pretty nicely rounded view of budget appropriations and stimulus. Sid, I'm interested when you've been listening back on this, um, of all the things that you learned at Congressional Climate Camp, what stood out to you the most? Honestly, I feel like I was a, a beginner when I was sitting in learning about these processes. And the things that I liked learning the most was seeing how these different processes work together. I never knew that the budget and the appropriations were parallel to each other, but knowing that they're all kind of happening in, in a cycle each year and how they're interacting with each other was something that I really took away from this. And I want to continue learning more and I for sure am interested in the next um, iteration of the Congressional Climate Camp next month. Yeah, uh, it's um, it's a fascinating process. I could geek out on it all day long. It was fun to do it for two hours last Friday. And um, it's, it's so important. And it's something that um, I think Franz is the one who makes the point has to happen. It's an annual process. His, uh, the Congress will figure out a way to get this done. And so it's um, not only a near-term opportunity, but it's a recurring opportunity. Uh, and uh, it's really, really important um, for, uh, for, for federal policy, but also the impact that federal appropriations have on state and local policy as well. Um, I think, Sid, at the risk of being too optimistic, we may have just covered everything. Um, I think so. And if we didn't cover everything, again, you can just go watch the whole briefing um, on our website. And if we didn't cover everything, we can come back for episode seven and fill in the blanks. Um, but yeah, it was a great start. Uh, thanks again to our speakers and to all of those who um, are checking out our materials online. Yeah, and I hope that everyone listening definitely RSVPs to check them out because it, it will not be a waste of your time. They are so informational. Um, but I think that's all we have. So I'm just gonna sign off. Great. Thanks, Sid. Uh, I will see you for episode seven. All right. Talk to you later. If you want to learn more about ESI's work, head to our website at eesi.org. Also, follow us on social media at EESI online for all of our recent updates. The Climate Conversation is published as a supplement to our bi-weekly newsletter, Climate Change Solutions. Go to eesi.org slash sign up to subscribe. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.